Hi, this is Jonathan Clemens, Director of Financial Education for Creative Planning. With me is Peter Malouk, President of the firm, and we are down the middle. If you kick around Wall Street for long enough, you'll hear the same old debates rehashed again and again. For instance, back in late 2019, some major brokerage firms declared the death of the classic balanced portfolio with its mix of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Well, guess what? We're hearing that again. After 2022's market drubbing, some market strategists are saying that bonds are more attractive now that yields are higher. That, that makes sense to me. But Peter, these strategists are also urging investors to up the percentage of their portfolio that's in bonds at the expense of stocks. After 2022's stock market decline, does that seem like a good idea? Wouldn't folks be potentially lightening up on stocks at a terrible time? If you're going to make a radical portfolio change, wouldn't it make more sense to throw bonds out of the portfolio? So, Jonathan, I've never been a big fan of just the automatic 60-40 portfolio, which is the portfolio that a lot of people just automatically go into it traditionally, uh, historically. And I remember uh, maybe five years ago or so, I was on a Jeremy Siegel podcast and I suggested that this was a really bad idea and the 60-40 portfolio was dead. And that's become a very common comment over the last few years. And the reason I had said that is bond yields were below 2%, right? So dividends from stocks were around 2%. Now, of course, stocks come with volatility. But I mean, if you hold stocks for five to 10 years, your odds of having a positive return are overwhelming. I mean, way over 90%. And if you're getting a yield equal or sometimes even better than high quality bonds, and you get the capital appreciation over time, of course, stocks are the better investment. But really, my issue with the default bond portfolios is that they don't really tie back to a human being and their goals. And I really like to look at the allocation as being driven by need. I think it's a mistake when we default to a traditional 60-40, or for that matter, if we default to a portfolio based on someone's risk tolerance, hey, you're moderate risk, you should get 60-40, or you're aggressive, you should be 80% stock. And we should get away from doing it based on age. Like one of my idols, John Bogle, was a believer in using age. If you're 70 years old, 70% bonds, right? And it just seemed like a little over the top. The way I think it should be is based on your goals. Over the long run, we think stocks are going to do better than bonds. And so for the part of your portfolio that's there to serve you for the long run, five years or more, seven years or more, 10 years or more, that should be more in stocks and assets like that where you're an owner. And we're very, very likely to be rewarded for that. And money you need in the next couple of years, regardless of how you feel about valuations or yields are, they should be in things like high quality bonds that are relatively stable and we can rely on them to meet your short term needs. So I'm a big believer on making the allocation that first critical decision in portfolio construction based on needs. And as you see the spread in bond yields from stock market expected returns, when you see that very wide, it's very, very hard to justify a lot of bonds. You really only want the bonds that you need. Bonds have become more attractive. Yields have doubled in the last year. And so it's enticing people back over to the bond market. I still think people shouldn't go over there for the yield. They should go over there only to cover their short-term needs. Because the stock market's in bear market territory, we know when the bear market turns around, which no one knows when that will be. The expected returns are in the double digits for the next five years. That's traditionally what happens. So don't be tempted to chase that bond yield. Stay with your needs, what you need over the short run bonds, what you need over the very long run stocks. Yeah, just to sort of back up what you're saying, Peter, when I think about the bond allocation, two principles in mind. One is that if I'm going to take risk, I want to take risk on the stock side of the portfolio because that is going to be your portfolio's engine of growth. And the more you have in stocks, the higher your portfolio's expected rate of return. And two, again, to sort of back up what you're saying, you know, when I think about 
how much to have in bonds as somebody who's on the cusp of retirement, I think about, well, okay, how am I going to pay for the next five years? So if you use the 4% rule, and I'm not necessarily saying that's the right rule, but if you're using 4% or so as your withdrawal rate, you're looking for five years, that's 20% of your portfolio in bonds. And the other 80% can potentially be in stocks. Now, I have personally very high risk tolerance. I'm happy to have 80% of my portfolio in stocks. So that's where I am, even though I am on the cusp of retirement. Other people may be more nervous about the stock market and want to have a lower percentage in stocks. But purely from a needs point of view, as somebody on the cusp of retirement, I'm not sure you need more than 20% of your portfolio in the bond market. What do you think about that, Peter? Well, all I'm thinking about is that I'm finding out on our podcast that you're on the cusp of retirement. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not about to abandon you, Peter. I, I'm happy to get on and talk to you once a month. <laughs> Fantastic. I do agree that the bond side, there are all kinds of bonds, right? Bonds are just loans. You know, high yield bonds are basically junk bonds. They entice you with even higher yields. Or in most markets, the longer you loan money, the higher the yield you'll get. But really, the part of the portfolio to take your risk is on the stock side, except the volatility there. When you're on the bond side, focus on quality. And even if you're on the cusp of retirement, having a lot of money in stocks can make a ton of sense because it used to be in the 1950s when people retired, the average length of retirement was zero years. You basically retired and then you died. Life expectancy was in the 60s. Now the average retirement is decades. It's not like you retire and magically you need all of the money in your portfolio. The portfolio still has to go on for decades. It has to fight off inflation. You have to have stocks to do that. And so that allocation, even for somebody on the cusp of retirement, I can still be very heavily stocks. Even if somebody doesn't have a high risk tolerance, they should consider it. So having decided what percentage of your portfolio you're going to have in stocks, Then comes the all-important question, how are you going to divide your money between U.S. and foreign shares? And of course, this has been a hot issue for, for years and years and years. And of late, a lot of people have tilted heavily toward the U.S. for one simple reason. The U.S. has done well. But of course, it's one thing we know about investing is you shouldn't drive looking in the rearview mirror. And indeed, after a decade of wretched performance, foreign markets are now showing signs of life. International stocks outpaced U.S. stocks in 2022, and they have so far in 2023. So if you were talking to an investor and they were asking about their foreign stock allocation, what would you say to them, Peter? Well, I mean, what a hot topic. And this has like really been a topic I haven't been able to get away from my entire career. So if you look at 2000 to 2010, International stocks and emerging market stocks, they just had an amazing run for that decade. And the S&P 500 earned exactly 0%, did nothing. And all people said was, oh, you know, America can't grow as quick as these other countries. And this is crazy to own just the US. I should have most of my money overseas. Well, from 2010 to 2020, it's just like a lever was pulled and international stocks and emerging market stocks greatly lagged US stocks for an entire decade. And then it carried over a little bit into this decade. Normally, there's a rotation. International US, it's unpredictable, moves up and down, but it tends to be one year, three year, five year. We had a decade of the US outperforming, and then we had a decade of international outperforming. At the turn of that decade, you saw Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Vanguard, BlackRock, they all came out and said, hey, we think international emerging markets are going to outperform the US over the next decade. And of course, in the first year of the decade, that's not what happened. But last year, to your point, we did see international outperform. We're seeing it so far this year. It's very, very early. And you're seeing a lot of pundits say rotate from the US to international. I think that the timing of this is completely unpredictable. If you look at the valuation of international stocks compared to the US and said, well, where is the buyer get more bang for their buck? 
it is 100% certainty overseas. There's higher dividend yield. We get paid more for owning those stocks. The PE ratio is lower. We're paying a smaller multiple to own those stocks. But just because of those things does not mean those stocks are going to outperform. So that value really is tempting some people to sell all our U.S. and buy international. I don't think that makes sense. In general, we like to see international exposure added to a U.S. portfolio. We don't really like to do 50-50 because the U.S. portfolio in itself, especially if it has a lot of large cap stocks, is global. McDonald's, Walmart, Nike, these are global companies. But I like to have significant exposure overseas. And that means... 100% of the time, you're going to outperform one of the markets, and 100% of the time, you're going to underperform one of the markets, whether you're using the global index or the U.S. index. But I think having those eggs cross those two baskets, if you fast forward over the course of your investing life, you're going to wind up in about the same place, but with less volatility because they behave differently. And the cost, the price of doing that, that exposure in the U.S. and overseas, is you're always outperforming one, which is how an optimistic would look at it, or you're always underperforming one, which is how most people usually look at it. And just sort of tie this back into our earlier conversation, Peter, about the mix of stocks and bonds and how you want to take risk on the stock side of your portfolio. One of the reasons I have such a heavy allocation to foreign stocks, in fact, I have a portfolio that looks like the global markets with similar weightings is because if I'm going to take the risk of investing in the stock market, I want to feel that there's a very good chance that I will be rewarded for doing so. And the way you ensure you get rewarded for investing in the stock market is by diversifying broadly. And that means not just owning 4,000 or 5,000 US stocks, it means owning a global market portfolio. So that's why I own the global market portfolio. It gives me the confidence to have very few bonds in my portfolio and have this hefty allocation to stocks. So Peter, it's time for our financial wellness tip of the month. So this month, we're going to be talking about charitable giving. So what have you got for me, Peter, on that one? So for charitable giving, I like really trying to time your giving. So take whatever charities you're going to support this year, next year, the following year. I'm not asking anybody to make it more or less, just whatever you were going to do. And then visit with your CPA or your financial advisor and say, hey, if I'm going to make these gifts... How can I make these gifts and get the most significant tax break for doing it? And there are so many different tax lenses to look at this through. So for example, if you're going to give $10,000 to charity every year for the next five years, instead of writing checks, you might give appreciated stock. And then you'd want to select the right securities. And that way you don't just get an income tax deduction. You escape a capital gains tax you are inevitably going to have to pay. Because when the charity sells that stock, they don't pay a capital gains tax. But also you can accelerate your giving without increasing your giving. If I'm going to give $10,000 a year to my favorite charity, instead, if I'm in a high income bracket this year, maybe I can move the $50,000 into my own foundation this year and get a significant income tax break because it may drive me into a lower income tax bracket. And I'm not giving more. I'm just getting a bigger tax break now. And then from that $50,000 bucket over the next five years, I give away the $10,000 a year. So it's just worth a conversation to say, hey, this is what I'm going to do over the next five years. What's the smartest way to do it? And of course, you don't need your own private charitable foundation, you can set up a donor-advised fund, Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, they all have programs where you can essentially create your own foundation, fund it in a single year, bunch the contributions so that you get a good tax break in this particular year, and then contribute it to the charities over time. That's right. We've set up thousands of donor-advised funds for our clients, and so it's a very common tool. And if you're a creative planning client and you wanted to look at this, just talk to your advisor about it. We can take care of the analysis as well as setting up that fund. And so as you think about charitable contributions, one of the 
problems under the current tax code is that the standard deduction is so high that unless you are bunching your contributions, it's very hard to get that tax break for your generosity. But it's a different situation if you're age 70 and a half or older. Because once you're age 70 and a half or older, you can do something called a qualified charitable distribution from your IRA. And what that means is if you contribute directly from your IRA to a charity, that money that you're pulling out of your IRA escapes all taxes, even if you usually take the standard deduction. So for somebody who is in their 70s or older and they're charitably inclined, seriously look at those qualified charitable distributions. It's a great way to support your favorite charities and avoid taxes on the money that's coming out of your IRA. So that's it for us for this month. Peter, it's been great talking to you. This is Jonathan Clemens, Director of Financial Education for Creative Planning. I've been talking to Peter Malouk, President of the firm, and we are down the middle. This show is designed to be informational in nature and does not constitute investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that the future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy, including those discussed on this show, will be profitable or equal any historical performance levels.